0: I do want to say uh, welcome back to uh, many of you, many of you have been traveling, some of you have uh, been home or students and are back uh, for the start of a new semester and it is it is great to see you back, it's great to uh, join you in worship uh, this morning and as we begin a new year, as we begin a new uh, semester, uh, we're going to begin a new sermon series, although it's not a brand new sermon series, we are we're rejoining a series that we started all the way back uh, in the fall of 2015, uh, in the fall of that year, uh, we looked at this gospel, the gospel of John together. We looked at the first part of the gospel. And so now we are coming back uh, to the second part. And we are going to let John lead us all the way uh, from now and, and into Easter. And the gospel of John, uh, John is the most, he is the most visual, of all the gospel writers, he he speaks in images, uh, in pictures. In many ways, this gospel, it's like a gallery of portraits, of, of pictures uh, that reveal who Jesus is, uh, what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. And, and these portraits, they invite a response uh, from us. And so uh, we're going to return to this gallery. We're actually going to kind of overlap the two parts of John. We're going to come in uh at the end of the second part and the first or at the end of the first part of this gospel, uh which is arranged by seven signs, seven miraculous actions, things that Jesus does that aren't just uh, they're not just magic tricks. Uh, These actions uh, reveal Jesus' character and his work. The the first one is uh, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding feast. And we are going to step into the story and consider the last two of these signs. Uh, This week, the healing of the blind man here in John chapter 9. And then next week, we'll go to John chapter 11 and read about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so I invite you now... As we come uh, uh, looking at these pictures of Jesus uh, here in the Gospel of John, I am going to read the beginning of this chapter uh, and then uh, some verses from the end of John chapter 9. And so hear now the word of the Lord. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And then join me at towards the end of uh, this chapter. We're going to begin in verse uh, 35 and read to the end. And just understand that between these two passages that we're reading, uh, a controversy erupts around what Jesus has done because he did it on the Sabbath. Uh, and the controversy ends with this man who has been healed being excommunicated, being kicked out of his religious community uh, by the Jewish religious leaders. And then we pick up the story in verse thirty five. <laughs> Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man?' He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Father, would you help us now as we come to the actions and the words of your Son... Would you help us as we uh, come to your scripture convinced that it speaks to us of your son, that it brings us to him and life in him. We have to admit that the things that he says, the things that he does are often strange to us, confusing, challenging, and even offensive. And so would you help us now to come with humility Uh, Would you grant us understanding, not just understanding of concepts, but but a true and full grasp of of what you are saying, how you are at work through these words in our lives. Help us to be changed by them, confronted, comforted, and sent by them, uh, by you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the Christmas break, uh, we visited my grandparents. And my grandfather on my dad's side has had diabetes for most of his life. And uh, as often happens with diabetes, that disease has severely affected his eyesight. And so my dad and his siblings have had to have... Hard conversations with my granddad. Uh, conversations that maybe some of you have had to have with aging uh, loved ones, aging relatives. Conversations about car keys. Um, conversations that, that try to get that person to, to fully embrace, understand, honestly deal with the limits of what they can see. And what they can't see. John 9 wants to have that kind of conversation with us. This story compels us not to just observe at a distance this blind man. But to draw near and to relate to him. This chapter, this story, has a con- wants to have a conversation with us about our most significant and dangerous visual impairment. The implication of this chapter is that without miraculous divine intervention, you are blind. We, all of us, are blind. Now, as it often happens with these types of conversation, that raises some confusion. Uh, that raises some questions. That raises some resistance. What do you mean I'm blind? I can see just fine. I made it all the way to church without running over anybody this morning. What do you mean I'm blind? And so this morning, I I want us to spend a few moments with Jesus, with this uh, blind man, with the community around them. And I want us to ask a couple of basic questions. First, how are we blind? And second, how can we see? First of all, how are we blind? Do you notice how blindness immediately raises the topic of sin The disciples see this blind man, and they don't ask, why is he blind? They ask, whose fault is it? Who sinned? Whose fault is this blindness? And underneath that question is a theory. It it is a theory of how life works. It's a a view of how the world works, and, and it is not just an ancient theory. It's a very common theory throughout history. It is a view of the world that exists to this day. In fact, this view that the disciples had, they share with the sound of music. My daughter received a DVD copy of Julie Andrews' version of that musical for Christmas. And we watched it, and I was reminded of the song that Maria and Captain Von Trapp sing when they finally confessed their love for one another. Do you remember what they sing? They sing, somewhere in my past or childhood, I must have done something good. Do you hear the theory? The theory is, this present good experience is the result of past good behavior. The flip side is here in John 9, the disciples saying this present bad experience is the result of past bad behavior by this man, or, well, he was born blind, so maybe his parents. And Jesus here and throughout his life dismantles that theory. Jesus stands in direct opposition to that view of the world. All due respect to Rodgers and Hammerstein, that song couldn't be further from the gospel. Couldn't be further from the Christian message. And I want us to pay attention to how Jesus picks apart this view of the world, how he opposes this theory. Notice that he he doesn't separate sin, guilt, and blindness. He doesn't disconnect them. And we can see this in the procedure of how he heals this man. You know, Jesus could, and he did in other places, just say, be healed, and the man would have seen. But that's not what happened. Jesus does this very visceral process with him, where he makes mud, puts that mud on the man's eyes, and then sends him to the pool of Siloam to wash off that mud. Why does Jesus do that? We need to understand that the Pool of Siloam was very symbolic for the Jewish people, and it was symbolic of the washing away of sins. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 8, the prophet says to the people, because you have refused the Pool of Siloam, God God is going to send the river of Assyria. And the message of the prophet there is because, people of God, you have refused to wash away your idolatry and worship God truly in Jerusalem. He is going to flood you, judge you with the empire, the armies, the defeat and exile of the Assyrians. So the Pool of Siloam was representative of the washing away of sin, the washing away of idolatry, the washing away of immorality. What about the mud? Well, the mud has a connection to the biblical story even further back. The word for mud echoes the Greek translation of a word found in Genesis 2. When God reaches His hands into the dust, the dirt, the mud of the earth, and He forms Adam. He makes Adam from the dust of the earth, so when Jesus takes this mud and marks the man with it, he is marking this man as a son of Adam, and that mark has guilt associated with it. Jesus isn't saying when he talks to his disciples about uh, this. Um, uh, this blindness not being a result of a specific sin of this man or his parents. He is not saying that this man is somehow purely innocent. No, he marks him with the guilt of Adam that needs to be washed away. And he does that not just for the sake of that man, but for the sake of his disciples, the sake of the community around them, and for our you see what Jesus, as if as he does this, as he spreads the mud on his eyes, he looks at us and he says, you aren't in a different category. You aren't innocent and him guilty. Or vice versa. You aren't somehow not needy, while he is needy. You are in the same category. You belong to the same condition. As this man. Because like him. You bear the mud of Adam. You bear the mark of Adam. You are born into the guilt of Adam. You share that same flawed, fractured human condition that this man shares. His blindness wasn't the result of a specific sin. It was the symptom of the larger broken, flawed, damaged condition of humanity as a result of Adam's sin. Jesus is saying, you have the mud of Adam that needs to be washed away and because of that condition, even if you have perfect physical sight, your vision is profoundly distorted. Your ability to perceive what is true about yourself, about God, about this world has been darkened. And darkened not with the ability to correct it with reading glasses, but darkened as in you are blind. You are blind in the deep, Tragedy of that blindness. The deepest tragic result of that blindness. Is not being able to acknowledge it. It is not being able to acknowledge the depth of our need. The depth of our brokenness. That's why the passage ends with Jesus saying to the Pharisees. Because you say we see." Your guilt remains. Because you are unable to acknowledge the depth of your guilt, your weakness, and your need before God, you remain blind. But it's so easy to lose sight of that weakness. It is so easy to lose sight of of that neediness. We're a lot, you know, we, we're we okay with, with admitting that we're a little needy. But, but a neediness that we can manage. We have trouble admitting unmanageable, unruly neediness and weakness. And especially this time of year, because it's a new year, and so we're going to do it better this time around, right? We're going to get it Right this time around. And and this time of year, that illusion of strength reasserts itself. And we re-believe that lie. But what unites New Year's resolutions, most of them? It is that we fail to keep them. That is what is common to New Year's resolution, is that by and large, we fail to keep them. Gyms fill up for the month of January and then empty out again. Just a small, small hint of how blind we can be. And it's not that resolutions are bad. It's not that a work at self-improvement is bad. It's just that no amount of self-improvement, even if we are successful at it, even if we go to the gym three times a week all year long and we make it and we keep the resolution, that act of self-improvement can still not meet the depth of our need. The extent of our Weakness. So I wonder if, if a better New Year's tradition would be for us is is not to make resolutions, or at least as, alongside of our resolutions, uh, to visit a twelve step meeting. And even if we don't share the addiction, to confess with them, I am powerless, and my life has become unmarried. That is the kind of confession that Jesus wants to elicit from us here in John chapter 9. He wants us to feel the mud of Adam that blinds us and that must be washed off. A condition we all share whether we have 20-20 vision or not. But this story isn't just a diagnosis story. It is not just a story about the problem. This is, in the end, it's a a healing story, right? It It is a story about a solution. And so we need to ask, not only how are we blind, we need to ask, how can we see? How can we see? And you know, at first pass... John 9 as a healing story, it seems to be bad storytelling because the healing happens at the beginning, right? The problem seems solved right off the bat. Jesus restores the man's sight with a lot of verses left to go. And so John, his writing teacher, asked him, why should we keep reading? There's no more tension. You've taken the tension away, and I think what that does is it makes us read closer. It makes us look closer and realize that John is telling a slightly different story than we think he is. John is telling a story where the initial physical healing is merely the first stage of a much deeper healing. He is, he's telling a story where the physical restoration of sight is just the first step on the journey of this man towards Jesus. And so, after he's healed, his neighbors come to him. And they ask him about about what has happened. And they say, okay, well, where is this man? Where is Jesus? Where is this man who has healed you? And the man says, I don't know. He's at a distance from Jesus. And then... The religious police, they come to him and they, they ask him about what's happened and they, they figure out, hey, this has happened on the Sabbath and that's not okay. And so they start asking him about Jesus and they're not happy about what has happened and they say, okay, well, who is Jesus to you? And he says, well, I think he's a prophet. He's, he's a little bit closer to Jesus. And then the religious police, they come back around again a second time and they talk to him about what has happened and they say, no, 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 this man isn't a prophet. He is a sinner because of what he has done on the Sabbath. And if you don't say he's a sinner, then you're a sinner as well. And the man says, I can't say I can't say that he's not a sinner. I believe that he is sent from God. And then that gets him kicked out of his religious community. And Jesus chases after him. Jesus finds him. And at the end of that second interaction with Jesus, what happens to the man? He's on his face, worshiping and saying, I believe. That's the story John wants to tell. Because when that man is on his face before Jesus, that is when he really sees. That is the full restoration of his sight. Not the recovery of his physical ability to perceive the world but the miraculous ability to perceive the truest reality. The reality of who Jesus is. The reality that Jesus deserves His faith, and that Jesus deserves His adoration, His worship, His surrender, His allegiance. That is true sight. That is when he really sees. And how does he get there? How is he restored to this sight? Well, he gets there by experiencing Jesus, by encountering Jesus as Jesus describes himself. In chapter 8 verse 12, in chapter 9 verse 5, and as John describes Jesus in chapter 1, the beginning of this book. This man who lived in darkness, a darkness deeper than his loss of physical sight. This man who lived in darkness encountered Jesus as the light of the world. He experienced Jesus as the light of the world. Now what does that mean? What is that title, that designation, Light of the world? What does that mean? But to fully understand that designation, we have to recall the first words out of God's mouth in the Bible. What does he say? Let there be light to understand what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world, we also have to realize that the events of John chapter 8 and John chapter 9 happen at a major Jewish festival. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a time when God's people would gather in Jerusalem and they would remember, they would celebrate their journey through the wilderness into the Promised Land. And that celebration in Jerusalem had two major rituals. One involved water. It involved the water of the pool of Siloam, in fact. And it remembered how God had provided water in the desert for His people. The second ritual part of this celebration was the lighting of lots and lots of candles at the temple and in their homes. Remembering what? Remembering that God's own presence had shone up as light in the desert. Remember? The the shining cloud, the pillar of fire, that God's own presence had become the light that protected and guided His people to the promised land. Do you see what John is saying about Jesus? Do you see what Jesus is saying about Himself? He's saying, I am that light. I am the voice of God that speaks into the darkness and that speaks the light that makes life possible. I am the presence of God showing up to his people for their guidance, for their protection, to lead them into the fullness of who they should be. Jesus is saying, I am that light. He was the light of the first creation and he is the light of a new creation. He is God's radiance entering the darkness brought about by Adam's sin and overcoming that darkness. That's why because Jesus hung on the cross and took his last breath. What happened? Middle of the afternoon, darkness. Because Jesus... Not only came, but he entered the darkness. But then three days later, as the sun dawns, what happened? The tomb was empty. It's the light of a new creation. How do we see? We see by coming to know, by experiencing. Encountering, realizing that Jesus is the light of the world. We see when we join this man on our faces before Christ, saying, I believe. That is how we see. We need to realize that we're all looking for light. In our lives, we are all looking for light. It's not that, just that we are in denial about our darkness. It's that we sense it and we try, to, we try to solve it with lights that are insufficient. My youngest son, Sam, his greatest wish for Christmas was the wish for a flashlight. No idea where he got that desire, but that's what he most wanted for Christmas. And so we went to Walgreens and bought him a couple of cheap flashlights. Now, you need to understand that we also purchased and put a swing set in our backyard. But if you ask Sam about Christmas, he's not going to tell you about the expensive, hard swing set that took us forever to put together. He's going to tell you about the cheap flashlight that we bought from Walgreens. And he walks around with these flashlights all the time on. And I say to him, Sam, if you're, you, the light's not going to last forever, buddy. The, the batteries are going to run out on these flashlights. We live our lives like Sam. We live our lives looking for light. And we look to, we look to relationships, something, someone who can guide us. Protect us, make us more, give us the meaningful life that we want. We turn to relationships, we turn to career. Uh, We turn to pleasurable or meaningful experiences. We turn even to religion. What the Pharisees were doing with their interpretation of Moses is they were trying to shine their flashlight on the world. But like Sam is going to experience in a few days, eventually the batteries run out. All of these things that we look to for protection, for guidance, for significance, eventually the batteries run out. And we're left in the darkness. And we're left disoriented. Why? Because we don't need a flashlight. We need the dawn. We don't need a flashlight. We need sunlight. We don't uh, need all of these things which can be good things, but they cannot be for us who God is for us in the sending of Jesus and His Spirit, the light of the world. Don't settle a flashlight, when God has given you the dawn of a new creation. So can you see how this conversation about your your blindness is good news? Jesus isn't taking the car keys away. He's not diminishing us. What does he say about this man? What does he say his blindness? What is the meaning of his blindness? It is that the works of God could be made manifest in him. You see, this man, he not only sees, but he is seen. He not only comes to see, this man becomes the visibility of God at work, making a new creation through his Son and through his Spirit. Jesus does the same thing for us now as we worship Him this morning. As we bow before Him throughout this week, throughout this year. Jesus reveals to us that He is the light of the world. And He not only restores our sight, but He is making us into the visibility of God and the work that God is doing restoring this world. So will you join this man who was blind on his face before Jesus learning to truly see. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to know that we have a need we can't meet. That we have a weakness that we can't address. We have a brokenness we can't fix. We have a guilt we can't cover. That we are blind. And there is... Nothing that we can do to heal ourselves, to correct our vision. But Father, in that admission, we, we ask for honesty, but we also ask for hope. Because we can admit that knowing that you have done something About it. Knowing that in our unmanageable need, in our unruly darkness, you have invaded that with your healing light through the gift of your Son. So, Father, as we deeply realize our need, would you help us? To even more deeply recognize your provision. Bow before your light, worshiping and believing. Father, we desire to truly see, we desire to come, also become a people who truly manifest, reflect, Become the visibility of your work in this world. Would you do that in us? Would you do that through us? We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.